This morning we have what we're calling Look Cambridge Sunday. And Look Cambridge is all the things that we do in our local community here in Cambridge. We have an amazing church. We, you are amazing people. Steve and I love being your pastors. We love this church. We really do. You don't sound very happy about that. We do. We really love you guys. And, you know, thank you. You know, we travel, and Steve has particularly been asked to travel all over the place recently. Since we've come back off sabbatical, we've had so many invites for so many different places. We were in Lambeth Palace on Thursday. He was in London last night at an all-Brazilian church. And we're, we're talking through an interpreter because they were all speaking Portuguese. So he didn't come back till midnight last night because when they party in a Brazilian church, they party. <laughs> so he had a great time. We also went last weekend, we went to Loughborough. We went to a, a young church, as uh, Steve mentioned. We went to Loughborough and uh, we had a great time there. You know, when we go away, we're usually talking about you lot. That's what we do. We talk about Cambridge and we talk about what God's doing here. And we talk about what's happening here because we love you and we were, this, is your, this is our family. And you know, when we go, we kind of tell the stories of what's going on. And last weekend, we showed a little video clip to think about what has been happening here in Cambridge. And you know, I think we can often forget what God's done and what God is doing, because we're in the midst of it. I don't know about you, but I often think about where I want to be, and where I want to go, and I think about the future, and I'm always looking for the more in the future. I'm looking about how I can improve myself, I'm looking at how we can improve things within the church, and it's always looking forward. But you know, sometimes it's good to look back and think how far have we come, and actually what God's done, and actually reflect a little bit, so I decided that I'm going to show you this video this morning so that we can have a little journey of reflection together. And you might uh, recognize a few people in it, although they look slightly different. But have a look and let's watch this. This was played on our opening weekend when we opened this building. So let's have a look. How cool is that? Do you recognize him? <laughs> I think it's all a stress. Somebody asked me whether it was all a stress. That's why his beard's changed color. He dyed it. He didn't want anybody to know he dyed it. <laughs> that was the truth. <laughs> but we've come a long way, even in those, this short time that we've had this building. And it's amazing we've got this building. It's like we've got a home now. We've got somewhere to work out from. We've got somewhere to live from. It's like buying your first home. Before, when you, before you buy your first home, people, you can't invite people around and have meals with them as easy because you haven't got a, a permanent place. But now we've got a permanent place. It's like we've got this home and we can actually uh, help our city, be in our city and have an impact into the city in a greater way. And I thought it'd be great for us to actually have a look at some stats and have a look at some statistics to see what's been happening since we opened in October 2015. So we're going to have a look at a few things, a few different areas of what we've been doing with local mission here in Cambridge. So they're going to come up some of these stats. Now I want you to go absolutely ballistic because 11 clients have become 
debt-free. 11 people. You know, it's easy to look at numbers and think they're just numbers. But these are people's lives. These are people with families, with homes, with cars that... It's made a difference, a huge difference. People commit suicide over having large debts. It's that serious. 11 clients have become debt-free. 17 people who have attended the three CAP evangelism events have made commitments to Jesus. How cool is that? Seven clients have attended church, two have been baptized, become embedded into the church, and three female clients have attended Shine. Let's see what else has been going on. Cap release. 20 people have been through the group. Some people have returned to keep working on their issues. Many lives have been transformed. Freedom from many types of addictions. That is amazing. That is amazing. 30 people have attended the six courses that have been held for Job Club. Many now have jobs, have grown in confidence, or are volunteering since we've started in 2015. Have we got some more? This is our, a food bank. This is just what's happened here at the C3 Center. The food bank is vast amongst the whole of the city, but what's happened from our C3 Center, 205, uh, in 2015, 586 people fed, then 1,212 people fed, then 1,471 people fed. Just here from the C3 Center, from the food parcels that we're giving out. Isn't that cool? I mean, obviously, we'd love the fact that we didn't have to give people food, but the fact that we can help in that way is really great. I think that's the last one we've got there, isn't it? Yeah. I also know there's many other things. That's a snapshot of what's been going on. There's many different other things that's been happening. We've been partnering with different charities in the city. We, we partner with Hope Into Action, and we have houses in the city. And I know in Hope House, we've had at least 18 women that have gone through that house that have been supported through Hope House. We, we also have other things that are happening. It, on a Friday, our Friday hub, we have a free lunch that we've run since October 2015. Somebody said to me, how will you know if it's a success? And I said to them, you know what, if we can get through Christmas and we get from October and December and then we're still going and we're still able to provide meals after Christmas, then I guess we'll start thinking that this is successful and this one is something we need to keep doing. We've done it practically every single week. I think we've missed maybe one or two weeks over those almost three years. We've had meals provided for about 50 people every week. So that's about 6,000 people that have been fed through the open lunch. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. All credit. I say we. We have the royal we going on here. I have not done any of the cooking, I have to confess. I have done some clearing up. But it's amazing what the teams have been doing. Snapshots of what's been going. We also have an elderly lunch club that happens in midweek as well. But, you know, it's just a reflection, really, of God's love, our heart towards people. God's love towards people. Because every single one of those numbers, as I said, has a name and has a story. And it's about people at the end of the day. Because God loves people and God's gospel is for everybody. Jesus demonstrated that to us on the cross, that he loved the whole world, that he believes in the whole world. He wants them to be reconciled, reconnected with him. But it seems that God Jesus particularly has a passion for the poor. 
I don't know what it is, but it seems to be that Jesus particularly likes the poor and wants to reach out to the poor. I mean, for example, he was born in a stable. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable. He didn't go for riches and pomp and ceremony, but he was there with lack. Jesus seems to have a heart for the poor. You know, when he was on this earth, he, he went to, the, when he was growing up and his, before he started his ministry, he went into the wilderness. And he was tempted in the wilderness. The enemy came to him and he had an internal struggle that was going on. That he had to, he had to wrestle with issues within his own heart and mind. Would God save him? Was God real? Should he throw himself off this? cliff. The enemy was messing with his mind and messing with his heart. But you know, he succeeded and he, he won those battles and he came through those 40 days of testing in the wilderness. Then he went into the local areas. He went into Galilee and he started teaching and talking to the people. But you know, the significant thing happened when he went to his hometown, his place where he was known, Nazareth, where he was born. And he said that he went to the synagogue, because it was, was Sabbath, and he went to the synagogue as he was accustomed to do, i.e. every Sunday. Well, it wasn't Sunday. Every Saturday he'd go, and he'd go to the synagogue. It was part of his, day, his weekly routine he would go. And he was handed a scroll to read. And Jesus chose where to read. He was handed the scroll of Isaiah. It must be significant if Jesus chose the first time that he read a passage of scripture in the synagogue, the first passage he spoke from, firsts always have significance. Well, the first passage that Jesus spoke from, he opened it up, and you know what it said? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. Good news. He went on to say, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he pulled up the scroll and he said, This today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, the thing is, he knew, he knew he was aware that God has set a pattern for the Israelites. He'd set a pattern many years ago before that there was going to be a pattern that the Israelites had to live. And every 50 years, God declared that all debts would be made free. Everybody would be free of debt. All the debts would be paid. Not only that, but all the slaves would go free. People who had been bought in slavery would go free. People would have no more debt. They could live in freedom. Not only that, that any land that had been, they'd been sold off, they could return back to their homeland and they could have their land back again. God has set a principle, a pattern, that he wanted his people to live free from debt, free from slavery, from imprisonment, and free to live free of greed, that they would have a land that they could go back to. 
Jesus was declaring when he went to the synagogue that this is the year of the Lord's favor. He was declaring that I am the Messiah. I am the one that the Jews have been waiting for. I am he who's going to release you from debt, not just physically, but spiritually too. Jesus came and he declared at that time when he read that scripture, it was so significant that this is the year of the year's freedom. This is the year of God's favor. And you know, we haven't stopped being in the year of God's favor. God is bringing favor. And Steve has a little song. And the year of favor is now because the year of favor is still here with us. Jesus declared that he is bringing good news, good news to the poor. That sounds like good news to me. It sounds like good news. What Jesus was saying, he was declaring, he was putting a stake in the ground and saying, I am him who you have been waiting for. I am he, the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. You see, he mentions the poor, but why the poor? Why does he talk about the poor? Who are the poor? I wonder what we think of when we think about poor. Who would you put in your mind when you think that somebody's poor? We've probably got an image coming up here. Maybe you think of people, children, adults, in other countries, or this country's, they don't have stuff. They don't have food, or they don't have money, or they don't have clothes. Poor. Often materially poor is what we think of when we think about the poor. And they do need our help, and they do need God's help. When we think about poor, yes, that can be a definition of poor and poverty. Poverty, we would agree that people without things can be living in poverty and are poor. But you know, sometimes what we do when we stand in the gap for people who are poor, we kind of think of ourselves as the rich and those are the poor. We can fall into giving handouts making transactions, giving them stuff. Because if you give them stuff, then they won't be poor anymore. But you know, sometimes that can make us feel a little bit proud. Aren't we good? We're quite good, aren't we? We're good Christians because we, we help people and we give them things and then they're, they're all right then and they're fixed and we've sorted out their poverty. But you know, we can almost become a little bit proud in our own self-giving, giving to other people. And in ourselves, we can become little mini-gods in our own little mind. It's called having a God complex, and we can drift into it. I know I can. I know I can. I remember a story, a time, it's not a story, it's a time, but it comes across as a story to you, but it was my life that I was living. I went over to Croatia at one time with a load of shoeboxes that we we're giving out to the children with the Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes appeal. I went with my daughter, who was 10 at the time, Becky, and we went out and we gave out the shoeboxes. And we stayed with a family, a pastor's family. There's pastor and his wife and, and three children. And they didn't have a lot materially in the house. And uh, at that time, the little boy was about three or four. And I remember 
that he, he was about three or four, and they didn't have a lot of toys, and they didn't have a lot of stuff. And I remember um, coming home, and Josh at that time was a little bit older. He was about six, and he'd just grown out of his absolutely favorite Spider-Man costume. He loved going around everywhere. He didn't mind about the fact that we were embarrassed. He would go everywhere in the center of town, everywhere with his Spider-Man outfit, with two little eyes in so he could see where he was going. He was Spider-Man everywhere. We'd be in the bank and the queue in the bank and like, you know, excuse my son, he just thinks he's Spider-Man. I think maybe sometimes every now and again he thinks he's Spider-Man now, actually. <laughs> Invincible, yes. But I remember going to this, this house in Croatia and thinking, this young boy, he hasn't got a Spider-Man outfit. How can he possibly live without a Spider-Man outfit? They're so fun. My son loves it. And I remember going home and getting a package and getting a, a, an envelope, padded envelope, and putting it in and putting a little note and writing the address on the front of the envelope and saying, this is for your son, for, the, for his Spider-Man outfit. And something inside of me thought, Something doesn't feel quite right about what I'm doing, but nevertheless, I think this is a good idea, and I posted it. But you know, thinking about it now, thinking about it now, the fact that it was a Spider-Man outfit that had holes in and it was a hand-me-down anyway, and wasn't particularly very good quality, I think maybe I would have given more dignity Maybe if at least I'd given him a brand new Spider-Man outfit rather than Josh's hand-me-down. Or maybe I should have even asked him, would he like a Spider-Man outfit? I didn't think about that. I just think he needed to have a Spider-Man outfit because he didn't have one and I had one and I could give. You know, we can fall into being the person that has the stuff and fixing people. But you know what? I don't think God calls us to fix people. I think God calls us to love people and to love people where they're at. That might involve them being supported and needing stuff in crisis times. But we mustn't think of ourselves more important than the people who don't have when we do have. Because God loves us all. But I wonder who Jesus saw as the poor. I don't think it was just people who didn't have material things. Let's have a look at some verses because in Isaiah, this is where he took the passage from. And as Isaiah opens the passage a little bit more, it says, He has sent me to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Jesus didn't just come to give us handouts. He came to transform lives. He came to give us strength instead of weakness. He came to give us joy instead of sorrow. He came, gave us to give us the ability to praise instead of despair. He came to give us a crown of beauty, that means dignity, instead of a pile of ashes, which is a burnt out potentialless life. Jesus came to transform us, not just to hand out to us. 
Jesus' life to us takes us from a place where we might be in zero. We might be in mourning. We might be in grief. We might be without. We might be weak. But Jesus takes us from that place of zero, and he makes us into a hero. Zero to hero. Not a hero for our own sakes. Not a hero so that we're like Spider-Man, but a hero to the people around us. Because when he builds us up and he imparts into us, then we can impart and help and build other people up around us. He wants to make us into oaks of righteousness. Oak trees are strong trees. Oaks are strong. People can be supported by oak trees. Oak trees can be used for many very different purposes. Oak trees are strong and reliable. Jesus was saying, we are going to make you, I'm going to make you, God's kingdom is going to transform you into an oak of righteousness, an oak that is strong. And righteousness means when you're walking in God's order and God's way of things, God will make, take us from zero into a hero, somewhere that is a place of strength. A place of strength when God's order is what you're walking in and living in. You see, we all have messy and chaotic lives. We all are broken people. We all need a savior. We all need Jesus in our lives and in our hearts. And he will transform us from that human chaos that we all find ourselves in into his divine order. Poverty is not just about material stuff. It's about emotional stuff and spiritual stuff, as well as physical stuff. And Jesus came to earth so that he could transform us and he can work with us and make us into heroes around us. You know, I think this woman here, I've got a story for you. I think this woman here to me is a hero. I don't know about you. See what you think. I recently heard a woman tell her story. She'd been pimped and sexually exploited for most of her young teen adult life. We were training some street outreach volunteers, and I had asked my friend, who had been recently set free from that life, if she'd tell her story to help us. One of the questions I asked her was what she thought of volunteers and outreach vans. She explained that she rarely thought anything about anyone at all. She said it was like this. I was so wrapped up in the streets and my own addiction, even if I was looking at you, I was blind. I couldn't see anything. It was a powerful description of a life lived in darkness. So I asked her, what made the difference? What got through your blindness? She answered that it was the persistent kindness and grace of people who had the light. One time, after many times, one act of kindness got through. In the end, a kick in the darkness really did bleed daylight and my friend finally saw that there was a way out, and she took it. Now she lives a different life and helps others do the same. It's the power of light and the willingness of people to journey through the darkness to let that light emerge. I asked her if she had any advice for us as we tried to help others like her. She said, never give up. Never stop praying. Never stop trying. All of it makes a difference, whether you can see it or not. She's a hero to me. I don't know about to you. You know, we might look and think, what causes poverty? Because Jesus said he's come to bring good news to the poor. 
So therefore, there must be poverty if Jesus needs to come to bring good news. When you go to the doctors, the doctor usually gives you a prescription. And the doctor gives you a medicine to treat the symptoms. But you know, those symptoms won't really be dealt with unless you get to the root cause. And sometimes we look and we try and treat the symptoms and not the actual root cause. What we think about poverty and what we think the root causes will determine how we treat it and what we do about it. If we think that people lack education and lack knowledge, then we'll try and educate them as a way of helping them out of their poverty. I remember when I trained as a teacher, education was everything. Any, any, any life's problems could be solved through education. Education, education, education. If we think people lack knowledge, then we'll educate. And that can be one cause. That can be one help towards, towards poverty. If we think poverty is caused by being oppressed by powerful people, for example, being in slavery, then we'll work for social justice within our world. If we think that poverty is caused by people's own issues and their own personal sins, then we'll evangelize and we'll disciple and help work towards them. If we think it's a lack of resources, like we said, then we'll give stuff to people just to help them out. You know, here at C3, we often have people, particularly on a Friday, will come and they'll say, we can't pay a gas bill or electric bill, or we need some food. And so we help because it's a crisis situation and we help and we support. But you know, sometimes we get to the point where we go, that maybe is only a symptom. What's the real issue? And actually that person may not have the self-discipline maybe to get a job or the confidence to get a job. So at times we will stop and we'll say, okay, let's build a relationship with you. Let's build a relationship and see whether we can work on what's the real cause of what's happening right here. Why don't you join the job club here or one other one in the city? Why don't you get alongside people that can help you to support you, to walk you through on this journey? You know, it's not always easy to find out what are the root causes. It takes time. But in Isaiah, it says, spend yourself on behalf of the poor. Give yourself. Find out what it is that it is the root causes in order to help them. But, you know, I found a biggest, biggest issue that we've found, and I've been reading around this and found this so helpful. The Bible isn't a textbook, but it helps us and it gives us insights into human nature, into history, into culture. And, you know, one of the greatest stories on earth is God's story, starting in creation, when everything was perfect, everything was right. Adam and Eve had a good relationship with each other, a good relationship with the world, good relationship with God, good relationship all round. But you know, the fall came, and as a consequence of the fall, things got messed up. You see, God is a relational God. God lives in relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is in relationship. And I believe that relationships affect everything. Relationships affect, affect everything. Our relationships affect everything in society, 
the economic system, the political system, the social system, the religious system, it affects everything. And when relationships are functioning properly, then people can actually work and fulfill their God-given purpose. But you know, there's four relationships, and I'll quickly look at the four relationships that are so key. A relationship with God is our first one. Every one of us has a relationship with God, whether that's a close relationship with God or a distant relationship with God. It's our key relationship that we need to look at, examine, work towards, be an intimate relationship with God. You might feel far away from God today. Then you may have some spiritual poverty going on in your heart. Draw closer because he wants to be closer to you. We have a relationship with God, our key relationship that we need to work and look at. We have a relationship with self, our relationship with who we are and how what we think about ourselves. But you know what? Every single one of us is precious. Every single one of us is unique. And you know why? Because each and every one of us are made in the image of God. Each and every one of us is precious. And we have to look at our relationship that we have with ourselves. You know, God said when he was asked, Jesus was asked, what are the chief commandments? What are the things that I need to follow? He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others. Love your neighbor as you would love yourself. So you need to love yourself. Your relationship with God, your relationship with others, your relationship with self. Your third one is relationship with others. And then fourthly, the relationship with the world around you. And that's where the physical stuff comes in. We need all these four relationships to work in harmony with each other. When any one of these relationships are broken, we can find ourselves in poverty. We can find ourselves in poverty. Think of people who've caught up in crime in, other, in, in lots of places and inmates often the statistics show that it's relationships with the family, it's relationships with the father that caused that relationship breakdown and they found themselves in a life of crime. Relationships with others, relationships with self, relationship with God, relationship with the world around us. When any of them is in strain, then we can find ourselves in poverty. But you know the reverse is true. If all these are in harmony together, then actually we find a word called shalom, and God brings a peace. We need each other. None of us are islands. We need to support one another in that. You know, those four key relationships, I believe, are so vital. You know, if our relationships, we might have relationship with the world, a relationship with others, relationship with self, but if we haven't got a relationship with God, the Bible says, what would it profit if you gain the whole world? Let you use your soul. We must look at that also. You know, our response may well be, what do we do with all the poverty that is around us? How do we respond to poverty that is in our world? There's a great story in the Bible where Jesus was with his disciples and all the crowd had come. There was 5,000 people that had come and they'd followed Jesus and they were hungry. They had been with him the whole day. 
And the disciples went to Jesus and said, these people are hungry. They need to eat. They haven't eaten all day. They need to get some food. So they said to Jesus, send them away so they can go and get some food. Sometimes that's our response. I think it's too big. The need is too great. Send them away. Let somebody else deal with it. But you know what Jesus said to them? What have we got? Go and find out what you've got. Go and find out what's in the crowd. And they came back with five loaves and two fish. It was seemed so small, so insignificant. It was such a little amount of food. But Jesus took the little and he made it into a lot. He took the small and he made it into large. Our hearts sometimes say, send them away. I don't know what to do. I haven't got much to offer. But Jesus says, just bring the little that you have and what the little I you bring to me, I can use and I can make it into a lot. And you know what's amazing is those disciples at the end of the day, there was food left over. They had 12 baskets of food. And I just imagine the disciples going back home. Maybe one of them was a guy, went back to his wife, you know, and had this massive basket of food, of bread and fish. And it was like, what have you been up to today? Oh, well, we just fed these people and we've got a bit of a souvenir. There's a bit of leftovers. Every now and again, God surprises us. God surprises us. When we think we haven't got much, he says, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about my kingdom working through you. It's not about you. Trust me in the small things. Bring your little things. And bring them to me and I can make them into much. You know, I confess there's been many people in my life that's gone through my life. Thousands of people probably. I've been through Steve and I's life. Thousands of people that we know that come to the church, that go, that move on for very many, many different reasons. There's thousands of people that I've wanted to love and care for and help and minister to and support, whether it was in relational poverty, physical poverty, spiritual poverty, or their own emotional poverty. I've wanted to help so many people. But you know, I wanted to tell you one story that some of you might know, some of you may not. There was one young lady that I got to know she was 17 at the time, and the first time I spoke to her, she was, it was at her baptism here at C3. Not here, but in another place. She'd come at the age of 17, and she'd come to C3 because online she'd listened to Steve and I talk about bereavement and grief. You see, a year earlier, she'd lost her dad suddenly and died very suddenly in an accident. She was an only child, and she found faith through what happened to her father, and she came along to C3. And at our baptism, she spoke, and I thought, who is this girl? She's, hey, she knows what she's about. So I got to know her a little bit and started chatting to her. A few months later, she got involved in the youth. She got involved with what was happening here in C3. A few months later, her mum got seriously ill. Her mum was really, really ill in hospital, in a coma. And my heart went... What is going to happen? She's an only child. She's just left her father. She's 17 years of age. We need to do something. And my heart was like, let's, let's do something. I haven't got much, but I've got an extra space at the dinner table. I can invite her for coffee, or I can take her to the shine course that was going on at the time, and I can do something. And she started to come 
to our home a little bit. She got friendly with our daughter, Megan. Her mum was in the hospital in a coma. You know, she prayed and asked us to pray, and we prayed. Steve went to the hospital and prayed over the mum when she was in that coma. A 17-year-old girl, no other family other than distant relations. You know, they put her on a life support machine. Twice they took her off the life support machine and there was no response. And they said they'll do it one more time. She prayed out loud and asked God to save her mum. I knew I'd cry. (laughs) And the third time, her mum, they took her off the life support. Her mum squoze her hand and there were signs of life. And her mum started to recover and they filmed the recovery because they couldn't believe that she was going to recover. So this young lady was part of our life then. We experienced a miracle together of her mum coming back to life. We got to know her. She got to know us here in the church family. And she found somebody and fell in love. She ended up getting married. And I thought perhaps you might want to see her on a wedding day as a photo should come up. That young lady is Katie. That's our daughter-in-law. And that's such a blessing that she is to us and to us as a family. You know? God takes the little. It was just hard to say, come on, we need to help. We need to put you at our table and just support what was going on. She's now given us a beautiful grandson. And she's a wonderful addition to our family. You know, God uses everything. Josh has always told me he would find somebody in the house to marry. I didn't literally mean he meant in our house. (laughs) He meant the house of God. Don't go wandering out. Look for them in the house of God. But you know what? God wants us to have relationship. Not just to give stuff to people and try and help people and think we've got all the answers and you need to have all the answers but come alongside to build a relationship to journey together to find God's heart together to love together to be the light that this city so desperately needs to hear from us